Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Sam Morell. He is a postdoc researcher working between the Environment and and working between the Environment and Sustainability Institute and the Astrophysics Group at the University of Exeter. He received his PhD in astrophysics from Exeter in 2020, where he researched techniques for measuring the properties of stars. Since then, he has been working on combining measurement techniques with computational models to predict the characteristics of artificial light at night and just above ground level in locations and at scales that humans and animals experience it. I want to de- he wants to develop quantitative models to better predict the ecological impacts of our rapidly evolving urban lightscapes. This is going to be a fun one for Mark Baker and I. I can tell Mark's already getting fired up. I can see it. Before we, get to our, yeah, before we get to our conversation with Dr. Samara, I want to invite you to visit RestoringDarkness.com. That's our website for the podcast, and it is also the website for the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, which funds this show and all kinds of great work um, at the front lines of the lighting industry. That's right. So if we're going to have darkness restoration, if we're going to have night preservation, if we're going to have beautiful starry skies for all the living things on this planet... We need people on the front lines to mitigate between light trespass disputes, light pollution situations. And the Lighting and Darkness Foundation is 70 to 70 distributors and 25 manufacturers have created lighting manufacturers. And we are going to do just that, along with creating educational programs, producing this podcast and creating other types of awareness. So go to RestoringDarkness.com. You can donate to the foundation by clicking um, the donate link. Why not become a monthly donor? We already have one. That's right. We got one monthly donor already. Believe it or not, it was so exciting when we got someone once a month. Every month they give 10 bucks. Man, if we could get a 1,000 of those, the work we could put together, I'll tell you that. And I'd like to invite you to visit the Soft Lights Foundation. Mark, is it softlights.org or .com? I keep forgetting. .org, please. Softlights.org. Dr. Sam Morell, welcome to the Restoring Darkness, uh, Dark, Restoring Darkness podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. It's, it's an absolute privilege to be here today. So thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in these quantitative models. Okay. So you're actually um, creating um, what we would call um, renderings of the light levels at the level of the Earth, and you're showing this as light pollution. Or tell tell us exactly what it is you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So. Um, so I'm kind of responsible for developing um, for developing uh, relative transfer models for for kind of for, for urban environments. So um, our first piece of work using this model is actually uh, basically a neighbourhood in the city of Exeter in the UK. And so what we've done is we've got a very long straight roadway, and we have the realistic streetlights um, placed along it. So we we're modelling basically with the spectral characteristics of the streetlights with the uh with the photometric you know light intensity distributions of the streetlights and we uh essentially we're using a method called monte carlo radiative transfer um sounds hideously complicated but all you have to <laughs> all you have to know is that we are uh, essentially emitting photons from each of these light sources realistically um as 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 you kind of would do with statistics into the environment, and we're letting these photon packets um, probabilistically move around and propagate 
uh, and interact with the environment. So we have all of the buildings in there. We have we have the roads in there, um, and those buildings and roads realistically um, reflect and scatter the light based on the materials in there, based on the um, based on the, the kind of the red brick material of the buildings as well. And the nice thing about this is that we actually do this in three dimensions. So we um, have a three-dimensional um, grid where you have uh, like volumetric pixels or voxels in there. And through each grid element, through each voxel, we record um, how many photon packets travel through. And we can build up a um, basically a, 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 a an idea of where the photons are concentrated within this simulation. Uh, and we can build up an energy density map in three dimensions of, of anything we simulate. So that's kind of that's like a, a very quick overview of the of the modeling that we're doing at the moment. Um, so that but the nice thing is that this this modeling is really, really scalable. So we're doing a um, we're doing a city street at the moment, but we could scale up to a um, to a city scale simulation with all the street lights in, for example. Um, and that could give us a three-dimensional idea of where the light ends up in a, in a whole city. Mm. Or we can kind of scale the resolution of the simulation down and we can get a larger area. Or we can, the, 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 the code that we're using was originally designed to be used in, um, in say, uh, diagnosing and treating melanoma, non-melanoma skin cancer. So we can do like very, very small simulations as well. Um, so that's kind of a summary of the modeling that we're doing. <laughs> Mark, uh, Dr. Morell is building the light pollution matrix, right? The matrix? <laughs> it's the light pollution matrix, <laughs> right? So he's using photons to render photons. Um, okay, so, but, you know, what really popped into my head, Dr. Morell, when we were talking about this, is what a great way to plan lighting control systems. Like, if you wanted to plan out and, like, lay out a lighting control system, um you know, you could definitely program that into your model, I would assume, where you could say, yeah, like we have the sensors here and this is the lights go off and this is how it works. And if there's a bat migration or a bird migration, you can turn down the lights using this. And these are the ones that are going to go off and we've rendered it here for you. So make it happen in the real wor world. You could definitely do something like that within that program. Could you not? Yeah, yeah, we could do something like that. Um, so we can, the, the really nice thing is that we've got a basically we take in realistic like um, LIDAR data, so we do the terrain. We take in building footprints, so we do the buildings and everything. So we can do that all realistically with the correct materials, but we can change out the lights. So in the work that we've done recently, um, we have like the real light simulation and we have switching codes that we can put into the, to the generation code that can like, oh, I want these lights to have this switching regime so they go off at say half past midnight and come back on at 5 30 uh for example or you can mm. kind of have them very very or they responsive dim, and have or they dim yeah they're dimming they down dim, yeah you or can, they you can dim tune the power. them tune them to warmer color temperatures stuff like that i bet too. yeah yeah you exactly know, you can you, we can switch them but also the really neat thing is that we can just go right let's hypothetically say we remove all the lights and put in a whole different lighting lighting installation with different spacings sure or different different, you know, different arrangements. So we can model as well as we can with the realistic simulation, we can model the hypothetical ones as well and see, uh, and see what the energy density in the, in the environment is. So did, did you create this program the same way, like Google created street view 
with that car going around and it's got the thing spinning around on top of it or whatever? Uh, boy, do I wish we had that kind of budget. No, no, we didn't. <laughs> we, so we're just literally using publicly available, um, publicly available data. So huh. there's a UK-wide um, LiDAR map. We're just using like publicly available one meter resolution LiDAR data. And there's, uh, there's a product released by the UK mapping service called the Ordnance Survey um, called Vector Map Local. And that gives us, uh, that gives us our building footprints. Uh, and then that gives us our road network as well. So we can reload in the road network and we can place lights along roads as well. So it's all just, it's all just publicly available data. So, you know, this is why I, I often advocate Dr. Morell that light pollution is the most solvable environmental problem. Like you can literally model it and make it almost accurate. And you, like to build the software to manage a city's lighting system so it was environmentally friendly. So let's use that term instead of like mm -hmm. this dark sky or night preservation. But it was an environmentally friendly lighting system that you could create, you could do all sorts of things with. The mm -hmm. software code to do it in your program and in real life would likely be the same operating code, would it not? Like you would, you would demo it, you would, you, you would create it in these different functions and you'd run them through these simulations that you create. And then you just take that code and you plug it into the actual lighting in the environment out on the streets. And so you have like a place to play around and see what mm -hmm. happens and make mistakes with the, with the controls before you actually deploy them in the real world. That's what excites me about what you're doing. Yeah, no, effectively you can. Uh, and the really nice thing is that because we're, the, the project is kind of focused on, on the ecological piece as well. So we're, 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 you know, we're doing the modeling piece, but we're trying to make connections to the real world where we can and to actually use those models to probe the effects on, um, on animals moving through the environment, on humans moving through the environment, on populations of animals that are moving through the environment as well. So, you, you know, we're hoping to have an entire toolkit for simulating both real and hypothetical as you say we you can test out different switching regimes sweat test out um uh you know hypothetically if i dim these lights during this migration does it give me a dark corridor through the environment for example that that this particular thing could move through and you can do it in 3d so yeah you could just put that put that code straight in and it would uh hopefully work <laughs> you get a lot of the this bugs out of the way <laughs> That's what I yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Dr. Morell, this is really incredible. I wasn't expecting this on this show. Um, I'd read your profile and some work you're doing, but this modeling thing is like amazing. And as Michael and you have both suggested, wow, the real world implications. So the Soft Lights Foundation tries to advocate and, and convince cities, in, mostly in the U.S., but uh, to not install, for example, 4,000 Kelvin LED streetlights. Uh, effects on glare, the effects on wildlife, the impacts on human health, it's terrible. But they don't listen. If they had your program and you could show them a comparison, and I'm thinking right now, if you connect it to some sort of a health database to show the impacts, like there was just a study came out that um, artificial light at night increases the risk of macular degeneration. Mm. Outdoor artificial light at night increases mm. the risk of our eye disease. Uh, that's sort of astonishing. Uh, we know there's lots of other health effects, but actually this, this 
street lights could be impacting our eyes. So if there was some sort of connection and you could show and model, say, okay, look at what's going to happen in the next over 30 years, uh, this many people in your town will now have macular degeneration. Yeah, that's um, that's a kind of a dimension that we hadn't really hadn't really considered. We've been focusing just on you know getting the 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 simulations done to show the immediate. Yeah, I'm sure. yeah. you're, I, right, you're at the early stages, and I'm already launching you into like the next whatever. You're, I'm going to keep you busy for a while here, but yeah, I mean, please do. Right, a, that's that's great. Okay. Um, I had a question. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a kind of a technical question? Because we are uh, struggling with the LEDs. So mm -hmm. Please do. the Please LED do. lights are a directed energy. And we have mm -hmm. not seen the modeling software capture that. The intensity mm, yes. in small spaces is really dense. This energy density that you spoke with. Are you do, do you know if you're if the software that you guys are using handles the difference between what we call a, a flat surface emitter like an LED versus a curved surface source like high pressure sodiums or uh, incandescent light bulbs? Boy, asking the easy questions. Um, yeah. Can, can you render can you render glare? I think that's a, a better way to say it. You know, a simpler way is can yeah, you render yeah. glare? So I mean, we we we're we're still trying to get the actual you know to get an image out of it working. So just preface that by saying that we're not we're not All at the right. moment getting getting images out like as you would see them. We we we're working on it. We've had it working before, but it's we we we're kind of implementing new features. Um, but essentially, if you can emit the photon packets in in a direction and you can collect them in a grid we can get down to as low a resolution as you need for that for that grid. So um, we're doing one meter resolution for this simulation because it's say, um, you know, say a kilometer by 300 meters by 70 meters high, something like that. But if you had a single light source or you had a, a you know, um, or you, you knew exactly what you wanted to model, you could take that grid down to very, very, very small sizes and find out where that where that concentration of energy ended up. In coming from it, so I, you could see where where the streaks of photons come off of your light sources, and that would give you an idea where the glare was. Um, but to answer your original point, we emit from point sources in the work that we've done so far, but we can emit from curved surfaces as well. So we can say, take this um, take this photometric data and emit from this cur curved surface with this spectrum, and it, it will let you kind of uh, emit however you want to off of this this mesh, this 3D, 3D surface. How do you define what the, the spectrum is? So we know that LED streetlights have like high blue spike, almost no red versus a, a sodium, what you guys think call a socks over there, um, mm -hmm. is yep. uh, an amber uh, spread. Uh, and then there's like, um, the LEDs that have narrow band amber. How do you do you tell the software which kind you're using? Yeah, I mean we we literally just feed in a spectrum, an emission spectrum. So oh. if you've oh. if you've got a manufacturer provided spectrum, or we're thinking you could, you know, fairly easily model an LED spectrum of a given CCT, for example. Um, if you can feed in a say wavelength by, you know, intensity spectrum, um, we can we can model the spectrum. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, is. And so is the range uh, visible light? Do you or do you go into ultraviolet or infrared? Um, the nice thing about the model is it's 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 completely uh, it doesn't use. Oh, I'm going to get this the wrong way around. We use radiometric intensity, so it works entirely in radiometric units. So if you can emit infrared, it, it can it can propagate infrared. We might miss out some of the kind of the really really complicated optical parts, but if you have say materials the where the where the reflectivity can 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 go into the infrared or um, you can define the properties of materials that it's traveling through in the infrared, then it should, it should handle infrared fine. It's just that the lights that we're using have the, you know, the classic, say, 300 to 800 nanometers spectrum. So that's kind of what we're, what we're emitting at the moment. The, uh, I'm going to jump in here, Mark. Um, in there, you talked about how humans and animals experience light. And at that level, how do we know how we experience light? And then how would you render that? Or how would you model that? So this is, uh, <laughs> this is something. So, so we're, we're, we've done a piece of work recently um, on a paper where we basically, uh, it's called Changing Street Lighting Schemes and the Ecological Availability of Darkness. It was accepted last week, so it's hopefully going to be published soon. Um, but the, the thing about the, that paper is that we actually, um, take our 3d, 3d grids of data, our energy densities, and we take off pet planes that are like a certain height above the ground. So we do ground level, uh, four meters and 10 meters. So roughly corresponds to where a, say a hedgehog or something would be on the ground and maybe where a, um, a bat or something would be just below the uh, streetlight line and maybe a bird or something above the street lighting, so we can see what the reflected light is doing up there as well. And the in those simulations, um, it's just we don't really regard um, the, the spectral characteristics of the light when we're simulating animals moving through that environment. We set them going and say, right, you will avoid light above this energy density so if they if they if they try and go through an area where the light hits this energy density they avoid it and, and reject the movement basically mm. but there's some really nice work being done by um travis longcore who i'm sure you and many of your listeners will be be familiar with where um they've recorded a load of uh, a load of spectral responses of animal vision basically by considering mm. the cones and rods in the in the in the eye um, so what what we're thinking we can do is just take the um, take the photon kind of the wavelengths of the photon packets that are emitted into our simulation, and then run them through, convolve them with the animal spectral responses of the eye, so we can actually see basically how much energy um, how much energy from photon packets ends up being actually received by the the retina in the in the eye that we're considering. The ecological availability of darkness. <clears throat> you see, this is oftentimes you, you. That was a like a um, a phrase that you used when you were you're saying. You know, this is why the term "dark skies" I don't think really covers what what this movement is about. Now, when you when you're saying that you've you know you've you've making these rules about whether the animals will penetrate areas with different kinds of light in it. 
what do you mean when you talk about the ecological availability of darkness? Is that something that humans get as well? Are we missing the ecological availability of it? Are animals missing this? Are they avoiding it? Are they moving towards it? What, what does that term mean and why did you use it? Well, so the, the simple question here is it's, you know, it's considering how do we model this in a way that we can actually probe which darkness in this in this environment is actually ecologically relevant and ecologically interesting, which would be um, useful for animals, for example, to be able to move through if they were nocturnal and photophobic. Um, as for uh, as for kind of the broader context of that question, um, we've only done a very very simple treatment of that in mm. these in these simulations. It is literally just a um, does does the does the, the 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 brightness that's in this you know it does the darkness that's present in this simulation allow these these walkers they call we call them random walkers because they randomly choose a direction and then walk to each pixel effectively um but the question that we're asking is a very simple one does the does the darkness that is present allow this walker to make it across the road um so you know do we with this lighting environment with this particular technology used with this spacing of lights along this road do we allow um the the very simple modeled animals the random walkers do we allow them to cross through in areas of darkness and so that's just one as you said that's one dimension of what is the ecological availability of darkness it's also it's about the spectral composition of the light um is it too blue are things that are more blue sensitive prone to being being you know kept away by led are things that are more red sensitive prone to being kept away by high pressure sodium for example um are things that are um easily attracted to light <laughs> do, do they get caught up in those light areas instead and so these are all these are all things that we're hoping to be able to to kind of model in the next in the next generation of of the work that we're doing to be able to actually answer some of those questions what is what are the available dimensions that we can test for the ecological availability of light and and how does the light setups that we have in our urban environments how does that ripple on to the ecological effects effectively hmm wow so the do, do you model into it the phases of the moon clouds uh, this kind of stuff is there cloudy skies can you say make it cloudy tonight even though there's a full moon or you know whatever do you have these other types of um, moonlight starlight photoluminescence is all that stuff planned to be in the program uh, not yet but yes we're working on it at the moment okay wow so we have uh, we, we we sorry go on let's go on no i i didn't mean to interrupt uh but i'll, I'll continue um i was wondering if is this I'm just fascinated by this. Like, this is so important. Um, is are you the only university that's doing this modeling? Um, and is anybody else doing it? Is it your idea? How did this happen? So I, I'm not going to claim claim the credit that we're the only people doing this kind of modeling because there's various <laughs> different pieces of really, really beautiful modeling work going on all around the world at different places. Um, but as far as I know, we're the only we're the only research group who's currently working on the the Monte Carlo radiative transfer um, 
um, a method of user of doing this. Um, and that comes partly from the fact that the project that I'm I'm working on at the moment, um, I, as you said, I did a PhD in astrophysics, so I'm I'm coming across to the ecology side of things relatively recently. Um, but the really nice thing is that a lot of the problems facing studies of of light pollution and artificial light and light in general require a lot of the same skills that that astrophysics. Um, that astrophysicists employ on a daily basis, being able to actually look at a light source, quantify how bright it is, quantify its color objectively without kind of bearing in mind the human vision response, you know, photopical, scotopic vision. Mm -hmm. um, so the really nice thing is that Monte Carlo radiative transfer has been used for both um, medical imaging and in astrophysics for decades. Um, so there's a, a, a whole a load of expertise in, in MCRT, in the astrophysics group in Exeter. And there's a whole, there's a whole load of, of geography and ecological expertise at the Environment and Sustainability Institute. Um, so this is one of those nice places where the, the interdisciplinarity of it has kind of made us look at it in a slightly different way. So I'm hoping that this, this modeling is, is, a uh, is a is a kind of lateral take on on how to do it i'd like to ask you about activism um the house of lords uh science and technology committee recently last year um did some survey and got some feedback on light and sound pollution both um, i commented on it people that i know commented on it and then recently uh, they have called for, wow, we need to do a lot more work to get light pollution under control and to get noise pollution under control. Uh, the government in the UK, though, is not that interested. Um, your uh, program seems like a perfect fit. I know you're just barely inventing it, but it seems like a perfect fit for something like this for the government to have in their hands so that, you know, so it becomes instead of just sort of talking about light pollution, oh, it's harmful, it's bad for us, it's bad for the animals, to actually show like this is the actual harm that's occurring, that they love, you know, there's a lot of people I think on staff that love the modeling and can play with the computers and stuff and they can show it. Uh, what's going to happen in the future? Wow, to predict the future is really something. Um, my question is about, uh, I know a lot of scientists and researchers want to stay away from activism. I've talked to some of them. They don't, they don't want to, like, they don't want to be polluted <laughs> by an agenda. What's your opinion on uh, your work and your opinion? I know that you have students and such. Uh, what's your opinion on activism in the, in the work that you do? Oh, asking the loaded questions there, Mark. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think to a certain extent, you you don't start working on you know working on something termed light pollution unless you do care about about kind of trying to improve the problem. I don't think anybody who's working on on climate change, on light pollution, on any kind of pollution can 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 kind of remain impartial to that because they are they're interested in it enough to to work on it but equally um i do i do agree that you're in a really tough situation if you're really really 
you know, you're trying to present objective, quantitative results that are meant to prove a point without any kind of bias in them. And it's the, it's very difficult then to separate that from from the activism, because then if you are known to be to be really to be really active in activism for or against something, it then kind of colors colors how your results are perceived by by both sides, right? So, in an ideal world, we'd like to we'd like to do, we'd like to do what we can, but I, I can definitely understand the uh, wanting to remain as impartial as possible. You know, it's interesting that when you talk about other environmental issues like plastics in the ocean or climate change or pollution of any kind. Oftentimes, the industry creating the pollution has a vested interest in propagating or preventing the solution to the problem. So, for example, if, um, you know, if it, I'm not going to get into climate change because I know people have, we know that light pollution, I know a lot about light pollution. I don't know a lot about climate change, okay? And I'm kind of a little bit suspicious of some of the motives in that movement. There's a lot of things in that movement that strike me as also uh, a business interest. You understand what I mean when I when I like they're masquerading as uh, uh, as uh, someone that cares about the climate when really they want to sell windmills or solar panels or what have you. Okay, so I'm a little bit suspicious about what goes on over there. I know a lot about the lighting industry and I know almost everything that goes on in this industry. Okay, but unlike say oil and gas, so if people said you know hey we're moving away from oil and gas. Like these companies are going to lose billions of dollars in investments. Okay, so like if we actually found a solution to get off fossil fuels, there's like people the the stock market's going to go way down in the energy sector, and certain companies are going to go bankrupt and all that sort of stuff. When it comes to the lighting industry and this issue, the lighting industry acts like an oil and gas company with respect to the, the light pollution, but in reality. I think light pollution mitigation, Dr. Morell, represents the largest single opportunity for revenue for the lighting industry. It's actually the other way around. So it's not like another industry like the wind industry is going to come and eat our cake. You know, the lighting industry is going to have to fix all these problems. The lighting industry is going to have to make the light fixtures. The lighting contractors are going to have to install and commission the, the new fixtures and connect them to the lighting control systems and train the, inter, the lighting controls integrators are going to have to train the people at the town to monitor and program their lighting control systems. And so like this issue to me is different than other environmental issues in that the lighting industry should align itself with this 100% because there's so much money to be made. I mean, I can't think of a better case for advanced lighting control systems than in what you're talking, in the research work you're doing, in the program you're doing, and planning it out there, and then actually deploying it in the real world. I can't see any place that it works more than in the town of Exeter, or Chicago, or Toronto, or Washington, D.C., or any other big city in Europe, or Canada, or America. I can't see any other place. The lighting industry has is set to make a fortune on this, Dr. Burrell, and I don't understand the resistance. And if we can get the lighting industry on board with this, we can make a huge huge impact. It would be like saying that Exxon could solve the climate crisis. Like imagine that you go to Exxon, hey, just make more gas, just make gas a little bit differently. And then there's not going to be any problems. You know, that, like, literally that's what it is, you know? And so I, I really want to convince the lighting industry to join this movement. And I think your models are a great way to get them involved. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what you're saying there. Like, it's it's one of the few places where the solution, you know, the problem is also the solution, right? It mm -hmm. Is is, but it's about having making informed decisions about the lights that you install, making them suitable, making them appropriate to their to their use, making them, but you know, just being aware of of the other implications when you're installing when you're installing lights and when you're setting them up basically um so i mean the the fun thing though is that well fun i say the interesting thing is that there's no as you say there's no unmitigated win here so regardless of which lighting technology so so one of the interesting things that we did in in the work that we're doing at the moment is we tried to basically do exactly the same setup so we had different separations of streetlights along a road, but we tried to just replace them with um, place down all LED of one kind of streetlight or all uh, high pressure sodium or all um, ceramic metal halide. And the, the interesting thing is that in, in that situation, none of the lighting technologies had an unmitigated improvement in in the results that we got from our from our kind of random walks going across the road, they all had a trade off. So it's about making hmm. the correct trade off in the I correct agree. situation in the right context. It's all about designing it holistically, being aware of the environment that you're installing these things into, and that is is the hard bit, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna say something, and you're probably gonna be shocked by this, okay? But I'm gonna tell you that I don't believe there's anyone in the world that knows how to do exterior lighting correctly. I don't think we know how to do it yet. And, um, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that Mark's working on uh, from Softlight's perspective makes me go, hmm, a lot. And I don't necessarily agree with all of Mark's positions on different issues. And if you listen to this show in the last couple months, you'll notice that Mark and I disagree on some things. Um, but that's okay. But what I'm saying is that I think we need to start from a perspective of humility. And we need to move <clears throat> into this space saying, okay, this is what we know now. Instead of a lot of times we come out as an industry, no, this is the lumens per watt, you know, 5,000 K lumens per watt. That's the most important thing because, you know, we're going to use the lighting industry as a hammer to hit the, the, the climate change nail, right? Be because we need to have maximum energy efficiency and that's all we're going to accept. And we get these tunnel visions on. We need to step back as a species when it comes to this issue, because I know a lot about this issue. We need to take a step back and say, you know, we really don't know what we're doing. We need to get together a lot of people like Dr. Morell who can help us model. We need to get together with some people from the Soft Lights Foundation. We need to get this IES glare committee to finish up their work on how we're going to measure the glare from LED lights, which is ridiculous and everybody knows it's true, but no one can really quantify it because we don't have any measurements. And we need to be very humble when we deploy. And we need to say, you know, hey, this is our first step towards you know, a sustainable or environmentally friendly exterior lighting system. And that's what I would advocate for because we need to learn a lot, Dr. Morell. And I love what you're doing because I think it helps us. It helps us, gives us a playground to play around a little bit. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, 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 I agree. Like I try, I try to remember, I don't, I don't know anything. In fact, I know very little. I just know my little, my little corner, my little modeling. Sure. <laughs> corner of the world here and it is it is as you say part of a broader broader problem we we do need to bear in mind that 
that lighting design is as much of a science as it is an art and vice versa. And there is to a certain extent, some subjectivity in, in the, in the art of lighting design in, in making the right decisions for a given environment. But I think what we're wanting to try and contribute to this, to this piece, to this narrative is to try and, you know, quantify whatever, some of the important things to build up um, a body of evidence that then help to provide the guidance, provide the, you know, feed into policy pieces and provide the guidance that then, that then lighting industry professionals can then, can then be confident and build upon and then do their really valuable work. So that's, that's what I'm hoping is, as you say, um, we can contribute towards the modeling, we can contribute towards the, the research piece and, and trying to understand how the ecological effects of light um, couple into the lightscapes that we have in our urban environments, and then hopefully um, feed that back into, into policy pieces and help move, move the narrative forward, I think. Dr. Morell, I will tell you that I am an activist. No, not shying away from that. Um, I want things to be changed, and uh, I'm not funded by anybody, so I can speak my mind. Um, I have a question about: uh, Do you do you go to an observatory? I, I think you have an observatory that you go to. Uh, yes. You show your students. Start. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to ask about the lighting on that. So I have a photo that somewhere, I think it's on my website. Uh, I think it's a uh, observatory in Ohio in the United States and it has this red lighting. Uh, and the photo shows it, it, it looks pretty dark and you can see these bollard style lights and they're like a red. And I didn't know if those were LED red or if they were some incandescent with some kind of a filter on it or something like that. Um, if I show it to somebody, uh, sort of a reaction might be, oh, that's so dark. How can you see? It's not safe. And yet, I think an observatory is one of the safest place you, places you can go, right? I've, I've been to observatories. I feel comfortable there. I can see fine. Uh, the, the lighting sort of matches the environment perfectly. And you guys aren't all dying up there on the observatory when you go, I think. You're not, right? I think it's safe. <laughs> can you do you know about your own lighting up there or who's in charge and is is it led reds or how does do you know anything about that boy oh boy okay um so we're potentially the observatory that we have to take our students to is not the best example seeing as it's it's a topper building um with a with a tower behind it with an office tower behind it and to the right is a city and to the left is the university football field, which has basically anything below 40, 50 degrees altitude is just no, you, you're not going to get anything most of the time. So uh, that's that's probably not the best example. Um, but um, I have been to um, I have been to the uh, Roque de los Muchachos Observatory uh, at La Palma, where we were on the William Herschel telescope some years ago. And um, I can tell you that there you see maybe the sky glow from the city at sea level. Um, other than that, it's like a, a almost a, everything is completely dark. There's no windows. There's no nothing in the observatory. So um, one thing that I remember very vividly is while we were there and we were waiting for um, 
waiting for a series of observations to, to complete, I remember just going out on the roof next to the dome and just looking up and it was the clearest, darkest um, night sky I'd, I'd ever seen because there's no, you know, there's no windows. The, the, the residencia down just down the road has blackout curtains on it. Um, and it's even recommended that you turn off your or dip your headlights as you go up the mountain if you're if you're driving back and forth the observatories. So, so yeah, it's very strictly controlled on actual observatories, um, but on on our observatory at, at Exeter, slightly slightly less so. Hmm. How do you on your observatory? If I'm sort of astonished, you have an observatory sort of in the city. How do you? Like, how do you see through all the light pollution? As and is it getting worse? Is are you guys measuring it? Is it getting worse in your observatory? So the the first answer to that is is uh, we don't measure it <laughs> because we would weep if we did. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's getting worse um, because we're going from this very very uh, we're we're going through a. a, a, a a program of upgrades to LED in 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 Devon in the you mean UK, downgrades where, where I live. Upgrades, <laughs> <laughs> side side grade. We're transitioning to LED. Okay, there you That's, go. I'll say that we're yeah. transitioning to LEDs at the moment, okay. and we're going from this very very well constrained um, high pressure sodium mm. or low pressure sodium line to to broadband LED emission, which is um, doing a number on on the sky glow situation mm -hmm. in Exeter. Um, so I, I really, I do expect it's getting worse. Um, we, we, we started when, when I, um, when I started working on this project, we did start monitoring the, the, the kind of the sky, um, the sky brightness. Uh, but that was, that was after we'd started the transition. So I, I don't know what the, what the outcome of that is just yet. Hmm. You know, it's, um, some of the, this is why I say this a hundred year issue. We're like the Moseses of the movement here, Mark. We're not going to see the promised land, but hopefully we're going to lay the groundwork for the, the future generations to solve this problem. There's so much momentum in the 5,000 Kelvin, 4,000 Kelvin lumens per watt, you high uniformity crowd. It's going to take a generation, a generational change in lighting designers to get rid of that. They just people. It, you know, it's it's yeah, they um, people are uh, have become obsessed with uh, the relationship, the false uh, uh, relationship between safety and our electric light at night. And we know that that it's not a simple relationship, but try to convince the public of that very difficult to do. Try to convince policymakers of that very, very difficult to do. Um, you know, like if you're a port. You know, the, you want to change the 5,000 K LEDs and point them out onto the ocean and you kill every fish with two miles within the, you know, the, the port because of the lights going out into the sea and pushing all the wildlife away from that area. But it's very lighting is it's almost people feel like they have a right to have their damn torch and their torch can be as bright as they want their damn torch to be. And, you know, because of why? Because I don't know. Christ is the light of the world um, because there's werewolves out there, vampires. I mean, bats. I don't know what it is. But there's something in us that is irrational when it comes to light at night. And I love the models you're doing because it allow us to, to push into that rational world and show people things before they create these catastrophes um, uh, of light pollution. We, But, you know, look, Mark, the first thing we have to do is stop doing damage. And this is why I tell the lighting industry, 
right now, Dr. Morell, there's a big movement in the lighting industry, the health effects of lighting, how we can improve human health with lighting. No, 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 no. Stop doing damage. Let's stop the damage first. Because right now, electric light, I can, I can quantify damage. I can't quantify any uh, human health outcomes. And so, Dr. Morell, we've made it to 45 minutes here. Do you have any final thoughts for the Restoring Darkness listeners before we, we sign off? And ask them to become monthly donors, every single one of them. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess my 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 parting my parting message, as it always is with these kind of with these kind of things, is just remember that this is, you know, this like all big global issues, and this is a global issue. Mm-hmm. Light pollution, as I as I hope you'll you'll see if you're you're listening to Michael and Mark here, is a global issue. But this is one of those issues where we actually genuinely all can play our part. So just mm-hmm. being mindful of the lights that we install on our own properties, um, being mindful that they're that they're you know not too bright. There's no not too much glare to them. Be mindful that they are actually directed where you want them to be, and that you don't have excess light if you don't need it. You know we can all do our bit to to try and help this problem. And turn them off when you're not when you're sleeping. How about that? Exactly, yeah. Turn them off when you don't need them. Yeah, that's a good Have them too. only where and as bright as and as long as you need them. I'd like you all to go while you're listening to this. I'd like you to go to restoringdarkness.com. You can check it out. Yeah, we're working on it. It's not the best website. We're working on it, okay? So we've got, you know, we got a lot of priorities down here at the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. But you can donate to us by going to restoringdarkness.com and clicking the donate link. And why not become a monthly donor? That's right. We already have one. Why not have two? Why not have a thousand? And then we could see some magical things that we're going to do. Also, we're going to start having stories soon. We have um, a major court case in Rhode Island. Folks, if that goes through, look out. Because what's going to happen is we're going to move light pollution out of ordinances. That's right. Ordinances, not they're like guidelines. Okay? They're bylaws. We're going to move light pollution out of ordinance, the bylaws, and into trespass law. That's right. Wouldn't that be amazing, Mark Baker, if we could say that light trespass is not a metaphor. According to this Rhode Island Superior Court, the Lighting and Darkness Foundation has now been told by the Superior Court that we're going to inspect your light trespass. You can't prevent us from going onto your property. Now, how crazy would that be, Mark, if we could prove to the Superior Court of Rhode Island that light Trespass is trespass. Here's a photometric report showing that 60% of the light from this fixture here goes onto this person's property, and they have not given permission, Mark Baker, for their their property illuminated by their neighbor's light. And 60% of the light from that goes onto this property, or 40%, and this is now a trespass. Wow, that would be so incredible if we were able to do that. So remember, folks, we're working hard. Go to restoringdarkness.com, and you can click the donate link and help us out. And we're on the, you know how Greg and I roll. If you listen to Greg, Get a Grip on Lighting at all, which is the other show, you know that Greg and I, we do not stay in the ivory tower. We get right down in the trenches where it matters, where the lights are installed with the people that are there. That's what we do. So go to restoringdarkness.com. Greg and I are going to kick ass and take names. If this Rhode Island thing goes through, look out. But we're going to keep working on it. If it doesn't, we're going to do it in Iowa. We'll do it in Texas. And one of these judges is going to push this thing forward into trespass law, and then it's over once we have that precedent. Also, check out softlights.org. Mark Baker, the man, the myth, the legend, is with us on the Restoring Darkness podcast now. 
So go to softlights.org to check out his work. And to all of you that made it all the way to the end, 47 minutes, I thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.